morning. So, as Simon said, we'll be reading Acts chapter 26, the whole of the chapter. So we'll begin at verse 1. The words will be behind me on the screen. And this is uh, basically an investigation before Festus and Agrippa, before Paul makes his way before Caesar. So picking up at verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defence. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defence against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way that I've lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, I was on the road and I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. 
At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defence. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning's driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it wasn't done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God, not only you, but all who are listening to me today, may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice, and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. Good morning, everybody. Nice to be with you. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, your word is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. And so please, as we read it, would you speak to us and illuminate our next steps? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the, the most watched event on TV ever took place last year. It was the funeral for Queen Elizabeth. Uh, it was estimated that over 4.1 billion people around the planet tuned in to watch uh, the Queen be laid to rest. Uh, that means that there's never been a time in human history when a larger percentage of the Earth's population were all watching and listening to the same thing at the same time. And so I want you to imagine somehow uh, during the Queen's funeral when the eyes of the world are all fixed, somehow you get handed a live microphone. <laughs> Don't ask how that happened, but you've been given a couple of minutes to speak uh, whilst you can say anything you want, basically, to, to the whole world. What would you say if you had that opportunity? I, I would like to think that I'd say something courageous about Jesus. I'd you know, point people to him. I don't know what you would plan to say in those moments. Well, imagine the circumstance, though, is if as you stood there in Westminster Abbey with the eyes of the world on you, sitting in a room with all of the most powerful people in the room, imagine what you would say if you were handed that microphone, but you weren't dressed for the occasion. You, you were dressed in the shabbiest clothes you own. You know the ones you do the gardening in or the ones you reserve for when you paint the house? You've rocked up to the Queen's funeral wearing that and been given the microphone. What would you say then? Would it change? I, it might be a little bit harder to be courageous and to be on the front foot talking about Jesus in that moment. Let's modify one part of that scenario further. Let's imagine that the event is not the Queen's funeral. Let's imagine that the event that the world's tuned in to see is a trial, your trial, and, and, and you're on trial for your life. And there you are, everyone's watching, you're underdressed, and you're given the microphone. What do you say at that point? I, I think at that point it'd be pretty impressive if you were able to string two syllables together. In Acts chapter 26, that's essentially the scenario that Paul has found himself in. Uh, he's been imprisoned. Uh, by this point, for two years without being convicted of any charges. In, in chapter 25, Paul's kind of sick of it and he appeals his case to Caesar. He says, I want Caesar to hear my, 
my case and to make a judgment. And he was entitled to do that as a Roman citizen. Uh, but the governor who he says that to is a guy called Festus. Festus is going to have to send Paul up to, to Rome and he's going to have to send a letter explaining to Caesar who this prisoner is and what he's done wrong. But Festus doesn't understand the first thing about Judaism. And so what he does is he calls in his friend, King Agrippa. He was the Jewish king at the time, a bit of an expert. And he asks Agrippa to weigh in on Paul's case. And in chapter 25, Agrippa arrives with his sister Bernice, and we're told that they arrive with great pomp. Uh, and uh, the Russian artist Nikolai Bodorevsky painted a picture of this scene, trying to imagine exactly what was going on as Paul was brought in before these great leaders. And I think what this painting captures so well is that massive sense of power imbalance between Paul, this disheveled man who's held prisoner chains on his wrists, and the most powerful people in the region sitting there in judgment over him. It would have been incredibly intimidating for Paul in that environment to declare his innocence, wouldn't it? As, the, as he explained himself here for the fifth time so far in the book of Acts. But Paul knew as he stood there that essentially he had the ear of the Roman world, that whatever he said in this point would be passed on to the emperor in Rome. He's holding the microphone, you see. The world is listening. What is he going to say? Well, as you probably picked up as we read through the passage, Paul is going to speak about the resurrection of Jesus. That's the topic Paul chooses to focus on in this moment with the ears of the world tuned in. The resurrection has been increasingly the issue that Paul has been charged with believing and preaching. It's been a divisive kind of a claim he's been making to his Jewish opponents. Indeed, the resurrection of Jesus is divisive. It is the dividing issue in human history. It is the knife's edge that separates humanity into two. And in this speech, what Paul is going to do is he is going to try and confront people with the truth of Jesus' resurrection and just kind of force them to reckon with it. And so as we look at this speech in chapter 26, I just want to pull out three things that Paul says about the resurrection of Jesus here and in a sense force you to reckon with it as well. The first thing that Paul wants us to know is that the resurrection makes sense. That's really the first thing he, he comes out proclaiming. He wants us to see the plausibility of the resurrection of Jesus. So have a read with me again from verse 6. Paul says, And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I'm on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it's because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Uh, Paul starts here by proclaiming this message about the resurrection of Jesus. Well, it's really just the fulfillment of what he and his Jewish people have been believing and waiting for for centuries. You see, in Jewish belief, there was a, a kind of a widely accepted expectation of the resurrection of the dead in the future, in some kind of general sense. And Paul says something very similar to this at the end of his speech in verse 22. He says, I'm not, I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. You see, Jesus being raised from the dead is what the Old Testament said was going to happen, if you've been paying attention. It, it's what makes sense of those prophecies 
that we've been believing for hundreds of years. This isn't just some new idea that we've cooked up here. It's exactly what we've been waiting for. And, and he says here that Jesus' resurrection, it is the first resurrection to take place. It's like the first fruits of a harvest. The Bible does talk that way about Jesus' resurrection. If you can imagine as a farmer is waiting for his crop to grow each year for a long, long time, that field will look empty. But then when it gets close to season, eventually you will start to see grain sprouting, crops being raised up from the ground. Now, if you could in, in that harvest, if you could put video cameras on every square inch of a field and, and record it in super slow motion, you would see somewhere in that field the first crop to pop up, wouldn't you? There'd always be a first, just logically. Well, Paul is saying here that Jesus' resurrection is just the first of what we've been waiting for, that crop that's coming. He's saying that the resurrection harvest has begun. Now, you see, this claim about Jesus coming back from the dead, it's not such a crazy thing to believe, actually, when you already believe in a creator God. That's Paul's point in verse 8 of this chapter. He says, if you believe in God, you believe that there's a creator, he made all things, if you believe he authored life in the first place, then why would you think it's unbelievable that he can raise the dead and give new life? That's what God already does. It's a pretty reasonable thing to believe, actually, if you already subscribe to a belief in God. Now, of course, there are some people, when we make this claim about the resurrection making sense and being plausible, they will say, no, I, I don't believe that. I want to be convinced by the evidence. Show me the evidence. Richard Dawkins, he's one of those famous people who makes such claims. This is what he says about the resurrection. Presumably what happened to Jesus was what happens to all of us when we die. We decompose. Accounts of Jesus' resurrection and ascension are about as well documented as Jack and the Beanstalk. All right? He's saying there's no evidence. But to that, Paul would say, hold on a minute. You want to talk about evidence? Let's talk about evidence. In verse 25, as he's coming to the end of his speech, he says to Festus that the things he's been saying are true and reasonable. And then verse 26, he makes the point that Agrippa should know about this because none of it happened in a corner. That means it wasn't closed off for no one to see, a shrouded mystery. It was out in the open, public, verifiable for people to check on. There's evidence for this. People saw Jesus. Hundreds of them, they talked with him, they, they ate with him, they met with him. They're still alive. You could go and chat with them, Agrippa, if you're unconvinced. There was an empty tomb. No one disputes that. If Jesus was really dead, someone would have produced the body, but no body's been produced. Jesus' disciples were radically transformed by this belief that Jesus had come back from the dead. And in fact, they were willing to die swearing that this was true. There's plenty of evidence for the resurrection. It's simply not true to say that it was not well documented. You see here, with the whole world listening, Paul is saying into the microphone that believing that Jesus rose from the dead makes sense. When you believe in a creator God, when you see that this is the fulfillment of centuries of prophecies and promises that God had been making, when you look at the evidence, you conclude that Jesus really has risen from the dead. It's plausible. And so I want to say, if you're someone here today who is sceptical about that belief, if that's where you draw the line when it comes to Christianity, 
ask you to reconsider, uh, to with an open mind look into the resurrection again because it stands up to scrutiny. This is not wishful thinking here. It, it really is worth investigating whether the resurrection is true with an open mind because the second thing that Paul's going to say here is that the resurrection is good news, very good news. In, uh, in verse 9, Paul reminds King Agrippa and those listening that at one point in time, he used to be violently opposed to this message about Jesus, but then something changed on that road to Damascus. And from verse 12, he then begins to basically share his testimony of how he became a Christian by meeting the risen Lord Jesus on that road. And, and in this version of Paul's testimony that we get here, we actually get a few more details than we do at other points where Paul records his testimony. And in particular, we hear from Jesus himself explaining how good this salvation message is that he's going to send Paul to proclaim to the world. Jesus, I think, lays out in verse 18 four things that are really good news about this message. And the first thing that Jesus mentions there in verse 18 is light. Light. Jesus says, I'm sending you, Paul, to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. You see, because of the resurrection, people can be turned from darkness to light. Now, we talk in our sort of uh, vernacular, we have phrases that pick up on the goodness of light, don't we? we? Talk about shedding light on a situation or bringing something to light because we understand that to live in darkness means to live with misunderstanding, to, to live in ignorance. But to have light is to see reality as it really is. Jesus is saying here that this gospel message can awaken people to see reality as it really is. That's the first good thing about the resurrection. The second that Jesus mentions there is that it brings the overthrow of evil. Jesus says that his gospel will turn people from the power of Satan to God. And so again, if, if you believe that there is a God, then it's not really a stretch to believe that the devil exists too. The Bible is quite unashamed to say that there's more going on here than just this material world. There are spiritual forces that oppose God and who work evil in the world. And again, it's the resurrection of Jesus, this good news that promises the overthrow of such evil. It's this good news that can move people out from under the power of Satan to God. It's the second thing. The third thing Jesus mentions is the forgiveness of sins. He says that they may receive forgiveness of sins. What a wonderful truth that is. Do you know how many of the problems that you and I live with and experience in our day-to-day -day lives are linked to struggles with guilt? So many. To, to be human, in some sense, is to struggle with a guilty conscience. Guilt is something that destroys peace of mind. It, it makes people sick. It creates anguish. It can break up families. Guilt corrodes us from the inside, does all sorts of damage. But the resurrection of Jesus is the solution to that. It removes guilt. It forgives sin. There is light, the overthrow of evil, forgiveness. And lastly, Jesus says this message brings hope. He talks about a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's what Jesus offers. If you've put your faith in Jesus, 
then there is hope for you that this world is not all that there is. Of course, there are many worldviews that will tell you this world is all that there is, and each of them invariably lead to the attitude of trying to get and grab and secure as much for yourself in this life as you can because that's all that there is. You see, wonderfully, Christians are freed from that lie because we get to live with the hope of a better place to come. Light, the overthrow of evil, forgiveness, hope, These sort of blessings are ours only because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The Apostle Paul later in in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Do you understand, friends, that a merely crucified Messiah does us no good? A merely crucified Messiah does us no good because... If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then darkness and evil have won. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our sins haven't been paid for and forgiven. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then there is no hope for us beyond the grave. But hallelujah, Christ is risen. And these things are all ours if we trust in Christ. This resurrection message is good news And Paul wants the whole world to know about it. And that actually brings us to the final thing that Paul's speech teaches us about the resurrection, and that is that this resurrection gives us purpose. The resurrection gives purpose. Uh, As the courtroom scene and the trial goes on, it becomes clear that Paul isn't the least bit interested in trying to sort of get himself released and clear his name. Uh, Despite the tremendous pressure that he's under, with the eyes of the Roman world on him, Paul has just one goal in this moment, and that is to testify about Jesus and convince people to put their trust in him. That's his purpose. Paul has already said, you know, multiple times throughout these chapters that he is prepared to die so long as he can continue testifying to the gospel. You remember what he said back in chapter 20 to the Ephesian elders? He said, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may complete the race and finish the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Paul's purpose is clear. And you see what he says to King Agrippa here in verse 27. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. It's a very kind of clever question that he puts to Agrippa because Agrippa's the Jewish king. His public image would mean that he has to say yes. Yeah, of course I believe the prophets. But he understands that if he says that, well, he's backed into a corner. And so he sidesteps the question, doesn't he? Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? Well, that's exactly what Paul is trying to do. That is his purpose. Rather than trying to save his own skin... Paul is single-minded in his desire to make Jesus known. So much so that he won't be released. He will get transferred to Rome. He will stand before Emperor Nero. And he will lose his life for the message that he's preaching. That's madness, isn't it? That, That is absolutely throwing away your life. unless Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And then that's not madness. (laughs) That's sanity. 
It's the sanest thing you could do with your life, actually, isn't it? In 1885, seven students from Cambridge University left England to go and become missionaries in China. The group was known as the Cambridge Seven. It included C.T. Studd, famously. He was England's most famous athlete. He was a cricketer. He played in the first uh, match that became the Ashes, where England lost to Australia. Uh, C.T. Studd came from a very wealthy family, and he had a significant inheritance, which before he left to go to China, he gave it all away. And he and the rest of the Cambridge Seven were mercilessly ridiculed in English life for their enthusiasm was the word the press used. It's just a polite British way of saying their mad fanaticism. To most people, it looks like these men were throwing away their lives. What a complete waste of potential. But C.T. Studd, he knew something different. He wrote a poem, a poem that's become quite famous, that explains his enthusiasm. And I want to read for you just a few stanzas of this poem. That's how it goes. Two little lines I heard one day travelling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes and fears, each with its days I must fulfil, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say it was worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I'm dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has burned out for thee. Do you see what C.T. Studd sees? In light of Christ's resurrection, in light of the length of the eternity that has been won for us, in light of the shortness of the life we live here on earth, in light of the sure hope we have beyond the grave, there is nothing more sane that you could do with your life than to live it fully and completely for Jesus, to let the lamp of your life burn out for him. That is the purpose that the resurrection gives to your life. And so I think the question that we are left with as Paul puts the resurrection to us is, do we believe it? I mean, really believe it? Do we believe it down in our bones? Is the resurrection actually driving us to go and live out our lives? Do we, do we trust that Christ was raised from the dead and live like he lives today? Is our conviction about the resurrection and about the future spurring us in mission out to a lost world? Do we delight 
in the goodness of what Christ has accomplished for us by rising from the dead? And do we live like we have hope after the grave? The resurrection makes total sense. It is exceedingly good news. And it gives to you a purpose for your life. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you have raised your son, the Lord Jesus, from the grave. Thank you that he has conquered sin and death and darkness. Thank you that he has secured our forgiveness and won for us an eternal inheritance. Thank you that this belief is true and reasonable. And thank you that because of it, you have shown us what our lives are to be about. Would you help us, Lord, to consider our lives worth nothing to us if only we may complete the task and finish the race, the task of testifying to the good news of the gospel of your grace. Amen.